Hi, my name's Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT in Melbourne, and I'm here with architect Warwick Chalmers, who's principal of Populous. Now, you wouldn't have heard of Warwick Chalmers. You may or may not have heard of Populous, but Populous is really one of the largest firms worldwide, or one of the at the top end of the of the of the scale. Hundreds of staff in the United States, 150 staff in the UK, which is just phenomenal, and about 100 staff in Melbourne, Brisbane, Sydney, and a small representation in Melbourne. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Um, look, I think this is a very interesting, um, interesting area that you're working in, which is predominantly uh, stadiums, entertainment venues, sports arenas, mass mass public uh, arenas, it's a different scale. It's a different, a whole different beast, if you like, to creating something special for people. They use it on a daily basis or on a weekly basis when they see their team play or they go to a concert. But delivering that type of product must be one of the most difficult tasks anyone could be asked to, to do. Oh, it is. It has its challenges for sure. I mean, there's a lot of technical aspects that we have to work through. Um, you know, but if I can just jump to the opening day, I mean, one of the things I do say to my kind of colleagues is, you know, at the opening of a house or a hospital, you don't have thirty to 100,000 people, you know, screaming and cheering or whatever, and that's one of the benefits of what we do. Um, it is. There's a lot of challenges involved. I mean, uh, you know, just in terms of just the general architecture, there's a lot of public safety involved, obviously getting a whole lot of uh, people, you know, kind of around the stadium and, and kind of ingressing and, and exiting in a kind of timely manner. You know, also factoring in, you know, especially in these times, what would happen if there's an emergency? How do we get people out safely and whatever like that? But, you know, and then, you know, that's the kind of base uh, kind of... Uh, kind of array of, of things that we have to kind of consider but also on top of that it's the fan experience it's like what, what what drags people out of the living room to come and watch a game I mean the, the TV product especially these days for watching sport is so great so advanced and so comfortable so how can we get people out especially if it's a kind of drizzly day your team's not going that well but how can we get them to the stadium so how do we, you know how we actually kind of think about that and making that kind of stadium experience that game day experience so how do you do that i mean i, was, I mentioned to you before we even sat yep. down the budgets are fairly good on these projects yep. but when you're looking at thousands of square meters of space that you have to deliver and creating the wow factor with relatively modest budgets yep. that requires more than just you know, a lick of well, it's it's you know it's kind of diving down, drilling down, and kind of asking yourself what you know what is it about the stadium experience that you won't get at home? And the first thing, the obvious thing, is being with your friends. And the second one, or equally, it's it's atmosphere. You know, you don't get atmosphere at home. You know, and then that's one of the things that we look at very carefully. And atmosphere is such a kind of intangible thing to, to, you know, quantify and create. But we do know that there's a correlation to the seating bowl. So, you know, in terms of when we're designing the geometry of the seating bowl, we're trying to make the seating bowl as kind of as close and as atmospheric as we can. You know, we also look at the acoustics and all those things. So anything that we can kind of really do to, you know, generate a seating bowl which has got fantastic, which is really 
you know, close and intimate creates great atmosphere. I mean, that's the great. That's the first starting point. And sight lines. Sight lines. If the sight exactly. Lines are lousy. Then yeah, and then there's also, and you know, kind of overlaid the top of that is just comfort. You know, as well. So like during a day match, you know, trying to kind of. Uh, maximise the amount of shade, then likewise if it's a kind of rainy day, the kind of drip line factor, trying to maximise that as well, and your right sight lines and so forth. So, you know, so that's the seating bowl, so that's, you know, that's almost the first step, and taking a step back from that is just the amenity, um, you know, starting off with toilet provision, I mean, that's just... But they're now more, much more sophisticated. <laughs> they I mean, are. The stadiums you're delivering now, and I think I should just mention a few of them, because I think yep. people either would have visited them... Correct. ...or... Um, or are likely to in the future. There's Wembley Stadium in London and close to home there's the MCG and Margaret Court Arena, both in Melbourne, and the GMHBA Stadium in Geelong, along with the Bank West Stadium in Sydney. So, you know, people are going into these stadiums and they're not just getting comfortable seats now. They're no. getting a whole range of facilities, shops. Correct. You know, the fan experience... You know, I've been kind of working now for 20 years and I've seen actually in that time a complete growth of the fan experience, especially probably in the last 10 to 15 years, there's been a really heavy emphasis on on that aspect of the design. I mean, back in the kind of, you know, before that time and yeah. even when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was more about um, the stadium kind of suiting the, the the kind of use of the spectator had to suit the stadium in that by what I mean is that the stadium just presented maybe just seats some toilets maybe a couple of food and beverage kiosks and you know there was a, a modicum of of corporate facilities nowadays it's a lot more uh, it's when we design a stadium it's it's kind of looking at the spectator and designing it for them it's like how can the stadium fit the spectator as opposed to the other way around so it's really look at stratifying the amount of um you know facilities and amenities and and it's not just one big lounge it's like okay there might be a series of all different lounges at different price points i mean we do a graph where we kind of look at you know we have on one side of the graph in terms of uh you know, household income. So, if, you know, the the mm-hmm. person that doesn't have much to spend, the working families, as it were, down to the high end corporate, and we look at the age group, and it's, we kind of set up a matrix, and from there you get a whole series of different kind of uh, areas and facilities, and so no and one features. feels excluded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a lot more stratified than it was in terms of the the product that we design in a the stadium these days than it's than say it was like ten or even kind of fifteen years ago. The other thing, Warwick, is that. Now stadiums, event centres, venues, you know, the the whole thing has to be, I imagine, has to be quite flexible so people don't just use it for one activity. You know, if you you created something just for football and then it couldn't be used for music events, then they'd say, well, it's a great venue for sport, but music, the acoustics is lousy. We can't have, um, you know, uh, big events here. You yeah, know, big absolutely. musical. So that's also a dilemma. Yeah, flexibility of use is one big aspect. Um, you know, look, you got to have a primary use, and for the most part, it's sport. But a lot of the a lot of the aspects you get in designing a kind of great stadium for sport do tra- do kind of translate to having a great uh, you know stadium. Oh, sorry, great concert facility or mm. stadium as well. But it also goes further that it's not just looking at it how it can be used for events. It's like during the week. I mean, you've got a big building there that costs a lot of money. Huge. And if it's not being used throughout the week, you know, in some capacity, 
which doesn't involve an event on the ga- you know on the pitch or whatever like that. Mm. What can you know? We we spend a lot of time looking at kind of diversity of use. So for schools. Yeah, look, within the schools and, um, you know, like function rooms and whatever like that. I mean, the new Tottenham Stadium in, in London kind of works really, you know, that works really well. I mean, it's based on a high street. So, again, it, just in terms of its urban interface was really interesting in terms of, you know, again, just by virtue of the fact it was on a high street, how, how can we kind of activate the edges just so that it just doesn't become this kind of Things barren part of the high, yeah, the high street? You've got this hive activity and then you've got the stadium and then you've got hive activity again. So we, we looked at the concourses double as a kind of marketplace. You know, they kind of link to the street and they double as a kind of marketplace food court throughout the day. There's a great museum that's related to Tottenham. There's a, there's going to be, I'm part of the precinct, an extreme uh, extreme centre of Europe in terms of you can do rock climbing, bungee jumping, all these things. So, you know, Tottenham is really great in looking at that aspect in terms of diversity and use. And how there's a brewery kind of, as well. Isn't there it? is a brewery. There is, and I think there's a fromagerie as well, actually, which is new. Uh, I don't really see the average sports fan being yeah. a kind of a connoisseur of cheeses, but apparently, uh, um, and I don't know if that's open during the week, but there is part of, there is a fromagerie part of Tottenham. Um the other issue is, you know, is the is making that experience more intimate because they're vast spaces. Yeah. Uh, you can really they could just be bland. But how do you do that? I mean, is it just creating moments within the different venues rather than trying to spread it out too thinly and you don't see really where the money's gone? I mean, yeah, you, you do. do you, I think you've got to you've got to look at where you pick your battles. So where you got to look at kind of you know, all the spaces. And you're right. I mean, you know, I just talked about the seating bubble before in terms of just making that, try and make that as intimate as possible. And then mm-hmm. when you get onto the concourse, well, all the other facilities that go around that, you know, looking at what are the type of different lounges or bars or whatever like that, that make the experience fulfilling and unique. And if, if designed well, kind of connected to either the club or the context of where, where the state or the location of where the stadium is and so forth. So, you know, we're, you're right, we're all for kind of generating kind of experiences and memories, you know, from that. So, you know, what that... would you say, Warwick, is the thing that is the most challenging thing in dealing with um, working at this scale that if you don't get it right, it can be a real disaster? And something that you've perhaps learned in the past without naming as, you know, any particular uh, project. Something that you really, it just takes so much energy in getting getting it right. Um, there's a whole lot. I mean, it's all the technical aspects and kind of that are all kind of happening concurrently. It's just trying to get all that kind of correct in terms of just, uh, you know, the, the the seating bowl, the sea values and so forth, getting all that uh you know, right, and then, then just the egress and then, you know, getting the concourse space is kind of wide enough, but at the same time, all those things are great. The biggest challenge we've got, and this is not unique to stadiums for any project, is balancing out the budget because with this great great amount of space, I mean, it's just like a it's like a saucer of milk, you know, you just tip it a bit and, it, you know, yes. everything falls out, you know. So, you know, with... with with a stadium, there's a lot of area there, and you just make what you think is a small change, but that could cost literally hundreds millions. of thousands of dollars, like even millions, millions of dollars. So that's always the challenge. It's like how can we actually minimise the floor area of the building without compromising the amenity, obviously the public safety, but also the amenity of these spaces as well. So The other thing I would have thought uh, would 
be a regular issue is the number of stakeholders involved with these projects and that um, everyone's an expert when it comes to sport. Yes. I would have thought everyone's an expert and they can tell you what they want to see. Yeah. No, I agree. Look, uh, with any stadium, I think there are – there's always a multitude of stakeholders. It's – it's rarely, rarely that we just get one kind of stakeholder to deal with. So, And with social media now, um, the number of fans who have an opinion must be overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, and again, it's not unique to stadiums, but the, the amount of uh, incorrect assumptions about stadium design does get you, I wouldn't say frustrated, but, um, it, it, well, it is frustrating, I must admit. So you're right, but... Um, but again, that comes part part and parcel of um, of stadium design. I think for the for the most for the, for the large part, given the highly technical aspects um, and dealing with public safety, a lot of a lot of the stakeholders do let us go when it comes to designing the seating bowl and the concourses, the amenities, and whatever like that. It's more so when it comes to the, probably the more ancillary spaces, such as the function rooms and all the other kind the of fan cafes. activation. Yeah, fan activation, whatever like that. But you know, I'm not crying poor. I, the, I think that's with any architect. Uh, the architect of any kind of large job, you're going to get multiple stakeholders, and that's just a challenge you have to uh, um, deal with. Warwick, I mean, you're across the board on a lot of projects, not every project. Culturally, it must be very different delivering a stadium in the UK or, or Houston as opposed to Australia. I mean, we have our own, you know, quirks. There are things that we Australians like when they go and see, you know, a match. What is that? What do you think is something that would works here but doesn't work in, say, in the UK? If you, uh, are, I've had the fortune of working both in the UK and here. Obviously, in the UK, there's the public safety. You know, we don't have the same kind of crowd control as you do in the UK, where there's segregation uh, between fans, and you know that doesn't occur not only in the seating bowl; that effectively occurs from the stadium through to the train station. <laughs> so, in terms of well, because people just get so uptight about the whole thing. Absolutely, yeah. The rivalries. I mean, you know, you'll get the the great rivals like uh, Arsenal and Chelsea. You know, Portsmouth, Southampton, so to speak. You know, so uh, mm. so you know where you might get fans that are literally. Uh, there is violence that can occur between between fans, and so they have to literally segregate them within the seating bowl and everything. So, and then as soon, it's almost till they get to the station. Yeah, until they can to, to, to egress. And luckily, we don't have that in Australia, and I don't think we ever will. Um, hopefully not. But uh, so that was one of the you know, and and the design of that in the UK that's a big impediment in terms of what you have to what, you, what you can design. And so I would have you thought- have to segment the stadium down into that being only a part of that kind of fan base to the rest of it and so, so forth. So the cost also goes up Yeah, correct. Yeah, correct, because you have to duplicate in some areas. It's not as efficient. You, you have to kind of Sit partially... Toilets, ju- yeah, exactly, partially cafes. duplicate things. Exactly, so um, so that's fine. And, the, and, um, and then the US, uh, there's a lot more... Uh, emphasis. I mean, again, they take the fan experience to the next degree, but um, than I mean, London. Yeah, absolutely. In the UK, in the US, and their yeah. budgets are bigger as well. Yeah. I mean, they have a lot more. I mean, for the most part, for the most part, in the UK and in Australia, a lot of these stadiums are publicly funded. So, um, where in the US, they're privately funded for the most part. So you can get a really cashed up owner in the US and 
it's yeah. been literally, you know, the world's his oyster in terms of just amenity and whatever like that. So you you do find a lot of US stadium. There's more lavish. Provi- yeah, correct. The provision of bars and uh, you know food and beverage bars, lounges and whatever like that, mm. suites and whatever like that are probably you know more so than here. So, um, Warwick, how do you see? Uh, this environment changing going forward? What are the things that if I said to you in 20 years' time, a stadium or a venue would need to include? Because, you you know, I mean, these are taking long time periods to complete yep. and I would imagine your research teams across the world are already thinking 20 years ahead, mm-hmm. at least 10 years, I would have thought. Yep. What are the things that uh, people could look forward to going future? Um, look, I think there'll always be still be an increase in the fan experience. I mean, we did a piece with National Geographic looking at the stadium of the future. We kind of always seem to do a kind of a piece of stadium in the future every 10 to 20 years, but we did one with National Geographic recently, and, and that looked at, you know, effectively kind of spitballing a whole lot of ideas about what a stadium in 20 years would look like. Um, I think the one of the things that's come through in the last five to 10 years is getting that connection... Um, between the spectator and the team, really trying to get them involved in the inner sanctum. We've seen a lot of uh, uh, the growth of field clubs, which uh, effectively means there's like a, a club or a lounge which is almost adjacent to the warm-up space and the locker rooms, and you can it, see the teams kind of come in and out. Because in Geelong, you created glass Correct. floors. Yeah, we took that to the to the new degree at Geelong, uh, down at GMHBA, where we had the, the fan portal, which we had a glass roof that sat a that sat above the warm-up area, which allowed which allows fans to to kind of stand and have could be hovering above the, the team as they warm up pre-match uh, at half time, and then after the match, and hopefully if they've won, Geelong won, have won, and and, and this season they're going really well. They can you can actually stand above them as they kind of get in their huddle and sing, and sing the team song because you know all the yeah. all the music's kind of all the sounds are piped up and so forth. So that that took it to the next degree from the kind of standard field club, and we actually. You know, I think we all see that further. I mean, we spitball the idea about, um, you know, potentially that, you know, one of the static elements that's pretty much been for the way for the last 2,000 years is the actual pitch itself just being either, you know, a solid, you know, grass or kind of, you know, dirt or whatever like that. But maybe in time it may be something that's a bit more transparent you can actually see underneath, you know, just get a new vantage point there. In terms of delivery of your your food, your food and beverage, it may be the drones come to your seat and drop things into, you know, your, yeah. you know, your hamburger and your beer or yeah. whatever like that. Um, and then also I think obviously sustainability. I mean, these are big buildings to operate. I mean, they don't operate... Um, you know, every day of the week, but when they do, they 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 do chew up a lot of power. So actually, how can we can we make these a bit more sustainable? Not only in game day, but also mm-hmm. given the mass of the building, how can they kind of generate some kind of power throughout the week as well? So, and who, um, Warwick, who are some of the architects you've collaborated with? You've worked with um, NH Architecture on uh, Margaret Court in Melbourne. Correct. And I worked with Fosters and Partners on Wembley Stadium. So that was. Uh, and that was great. That was early in my career, so early 2000s. So um, we worked on uh, with them on Wembley Stadium, and that was great, you know, to work with, obviously, uh, Norman, Norman Foster Norman and his Foy. team. I mean, he would come in and out and occasionally, but I, within that team there was Mujan Majidi, who was now CEO of uh, uh, Hadid Architects, and Ken Shuttleworth, who's another kind of eminent, preeminent um, uh, architect in his own right in London. So, I mean, it was great to work with them, and one of the things I learned from that is just the clarity of the idea. 
you know, Foster's had. I mean, I kind of, I mean, I'm a big fan of, of kind of their work and I think their their buildings are really kind of clean, uh, kind of clean and crisp and have a really good clarity of idea. And I think kind of working with them, that was one of the things I learned from them is just, you know, getting an idea, executing it really well, you know, not muddling up with other kind of things, showing a degree of restraint and just doing something really quite well. Yeah. So. Um, Look, thanks so much for coming onto the program today, Warwick. Um, I think people take these stadiums and venues for granted. I mean, they really do. They they turn up. You'd only hear about it if it's not well Correct. executed. <laughs> yes. And then you get the, you know, we couldn't see who was playing. Yeah. And, you know, the, the restaurant was hard to find. We couldn't find the bathroom. So, you know, given the fact that you've done so many around the world and your firm is so huge now, um, you must be doing something right. Yeah, no, I think we are. And you're right. And I mean, and I think this is with every building. I mean, a, a, any building that's well-designed um, is somewhat unnoticed because it's just, you know, it's making the complex things seem easy. easy. And, uh, and you know, that's what we do there. But as I said, I think we, we do that and we're looking at really just, not only doing that, but taking to the next degree to kind of really make them really engaging and inspiring and exciting and dragging people out from their lounge rooms into these kind of building types. So Yeah, and it is, look, as technology improves even on the home level, people are saying, well, you know, I'm kind of comfy. Do I really want to go out? Mm -hmm. but, um... Well, not only that, you know, it's just so much... Competition for other Absolute, things. Absolutely, for entertainment. I mean, there's just so much, I mean, you know, kind of growing up in the kind of 80s and 90s it was either go to a sporting match or go to the movies you know or go out to dinner or something like that now it's like everything oh everything in between yeah. you know and so accessible these days so you know and and the stadium as a building type has had to kind of compete with that and as as designers we've had to kind of compete with that as well and kind of always look for the new ideas but that's fine that's great that's what keeps our kind of job exciting and interesting so um, thanks for coming on to the program, Warwick. You've been listening to Warwick Chalmers, Principal of Populous, and uh, I'm Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> <laughs>